2: Good
3: evening. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, Those of you who haven't been listening to the show in the past, the show is divided in two parts. The first part of the show, we take questions about estate planning or we discuss estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. If you have any questions about estate planning, Elder the law, give us a call right now at one 970 9622 1-866-970-9622. If you want to ask us questions at our email address, the email address is the at com. I know that may be changing in a couple of weeks. Beth, uh, do you know what the new email address is going to be after next week? <laughs>
4: Um, I believe it's going to be Ask Mike the Lawyer at Gmail. Um, the we're, we are um, merging our system, the Connors and Sullivan, with the radio station, and so you'll if 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 y'all have fancy phones or on your computer, if you get their app. Um, For the answer, you'll hear, um, say you want to listen to one of the radio shows. You go to the, you see who's playing at the time, and then when you click to listen to the radio show, you'll see our banner sometimes come across. So we're just having a lot of fun. So if y'all will bear with me, as soon as all the details are worked out, we'll let you know, and you'll be able to find it on our website, and you'll also be able to find it on the radio stations.
3: Okay, now a few people have complained to me, uh, you know, over the last few months that uh, they tune in at 6 o'clock, and we're not on because of football games, which obviously it's good for the station to have football games on. So to help alleviate that, we're going to be changing our schedule slightly over the next few months. We're going to have our regular broadcast here on 970, football games permitting, at 6 o'clock. 970, we're going to be at 6 o'clock in the evening each Saturday night. Again, we're going to repeat the show, football games permitting, 5 o'clock Sunday night. But we're also going to be on each Saturday morning at 8 a.m. because there are no football games, as far as I know, played at Saturday morning at 8 a.m. on WMCA 570. So So you should be able to get us on one of those stations.
4: You'll always be able to get us at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. And then otherwise, we're kind of at the mercy of well, now Syracuse and West Point.
3: Okay, so Beth, in any event, do we have an email question for this week? We do.
4: We do have an email question. Dear Mr. Connors, would you please go into detail about how a pet companion trust is better than leaving something to your pet companion in your will? Thank you, Michael.
3: Okay, well. You know, it comes back to the same old question. Is it better to leave assets through a will and a trust or a trust? And usually it's better to leave assets for a trust. You know, let's say for the sake of argument you you have a pet and you want to leave your pet to a certain person or whatever, but you're afraid they don't have enough money to take care of the pet. Well, then maybe you leave them some money to help take care of the pet. And, you know, so you say I leave my dog to my best friend and I leave $50,000 to my best friend to help take care of the dog. Um, that's fine, but if one of the relatives doesn't consent to the will, that will could take months, if not years, to go through probate. And of course, depending on the uh, life expectancy of the animal, uh, may not uh, may not even survive probate. So that's where sometimes you put a trust together. You put the fifty thousand dollars in the trust, or whatever amount you feel you should leave for the for the care of the pet animal companion, whatever you want to call it, and That way the money automatically passes to the person you leave in charge of the the trust and they have immediate access to the money and to the pet. Um, One of the things is, you know, like sometimes when people say, well, you know, how can I leave money to my dog? You don't really leave money to your dog. You leave money to a person to take care of your dog. You cannot leave money directly to... You know, an animal, you have to leave it to a person to take care of the animal. So, you know, that's the question. If, it, if you leave it through your will, it's going to go through probate. If one of your relatives doesn't cooperate, if there's a problem with your will, staples removed, things like that, it could take months to get through probate. And at the same time now, if you leave it through your trust, you have money in your trust to take care of your pet, that money can be used right away, and you can also put your pet in the trust. So in the ownership of the pet goes directly to the... Um, Name person. I haven't had a lot of problems with pets being taken care of through probate or, you know, but you never well, that's know.
4: That's what I was going to ask. If it's in probate, who takes care of the pet while it's going through probate?
3: Well, ordinarily, you know, the the thing is, a pet's usually not hard to take possession of because you don't have to go to a bank or another institution to get the title changed. So, you know, and I, have, I haven't had too many cases. I haven't had one case that I know where people fought over a pet. But, you know, sometimes they fight over who's not going to get the pet. But I haven't had a problem yet with people fighting over pets. But in the meanwhile, let's see if we can take a question from, I'm sorry, is it Anna in Corona? Yes, Anna.
2: Hi, yes. Um, my question is that my parents own a house here in Queens, and then they also have a couple of properties in Columbia. So my question is, not Columbia, can South they Carolina. They do
3: no, Columbia, the country. Okay. <laughs>
2: and so do they need to do anything here in this property, or
4: does that have to be taken care of over there?
3: Well, the property here in Queens, we would do a trust in New York and put the property in New York and a trust to protect that. Columbia, I seriously doubt if Medicaid could put a lien on any property overseas. I, you know, I don't think they really could do that, but it's still – you might want to do something so you don't have to go to court in Colombia. and of course that's based on Napoleonic Code, and you can make certain gifts, and the tax laws are completely different, so obviously you would have to see somebody within the, you know, the country of Colombia to do that. But if papers need to be notarized or whatever, we can do that. In a lot of cases, you may have to go to the consulate to get the signature witnessed.
5: Oh, uh, okay. Great. Okay. Thank you.
3: All right. Okay. All right, Beth, so... Uh, Last night we went to the military um, ball, and our good buddy Tony LoBianco received an w- award.
4: And we were fortunate enough to listen to his video again, yeah. um, The Common Soldier, which is just extraordinary. I, I have to try not to cry every time I listen to it. But um, it was for the Soldiers and Sailors um, building. There is all, It's on 36th and Lexington. And it was a fundraiser to keep that building in – what did they say? It started in 1919?
3: 1919, after the uh, First World War.
4: And General Pershing was the one that helped establish it, right?
3: Right, right. Or at least uh, yeah, they enlisted his help to to help establish it. There's a lot of history in that place and whatever. So uh, – again, well there was a lot of express there were a lot of military members there there were every table I think had at least one or two uh, members of the military in uniform so it, it was a nice event and Tony does a lot for our veterans, if nothing else, just the fact that he keeps the idea of veterans World War II veterans, especially in his common soldier plea where you know he appreciates what was done and you know a lot of times it's very sad over the last few years because we've lost a lot of our friends who were World War II veterans because they're in their 90s and it's a little piece of history that dies with each one of them
4: and that that's what tony says you know it's every time someone each one of these passes away it's a it's a hero an unsung hero
3: right and and again it is you know part of history and and most of these guys have great stories to tell some of them don't want to talk about it too much but a lot of times they talk about the story that happened just after the war ended or whatever, like our our buddy Morris, who died earlier this year. You know, he talked about, you know, he was a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, was in the service. He was in Italy at the end of uh, World War II. And after the war was over, he broke into a German Nazi um, garage, and he was (laughs) an auto mechanic by trade. So he broke in there. He took a, a motorcycle. And like the Johnny Cash song, mailed it piece <laughs> by piece back to Brooklyn, and it assembled it when uh, when he got back to the States. So, you know, Morris there was a little Jewish guy driving around and riding around in a Nazi motorcycle <laughs> in 1946 Brooklyn. So it's those type of stories that you can't repeat. But meanwhile, I guess we need to take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Now, our guests tonight, we're going to have two guests on tonight. And I know some of you listened to the show on MCA. You might have heard these guests, but they haven't been— Their interviews have not been played on 970 The Answer. We're going to have Dinesh D'Souza, and we're going to have Patrick Wayne, and we're going to be talking to Patrick about coming to Brooklyn on October 9th. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors.
1: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going.
2: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have
1: a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
6: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not
0: be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
4: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
6: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
4: You're coming home to a
1: Catholic family where people today just embrace you.
5: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org
3: today.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
5: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Monday, October 23rd at Vesuvio Restaurant, 7305 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn on Wednesday, October 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., and 7 p.m. And on Thursday, October 26th at the Montauk Club, 25 Eighth Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
5: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
5: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
1: Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Join the John Wayne Cancer Institute and Patrick Wayne for a wonderful cause and an evening of food, fun, and philanthropy Monday, October 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Bay Ridge Manor in Brooklyn, New York. Sponsored by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law. Patrick will share his experiences as an actor working with his father and doctors will answer questions about their research and working with the Wayne family. Bid on great auction items like an Andy Warhol poster of John Wayne autographed by Patrick. Donation for admission is $50. RSVP by calling Monica Fay at Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500. That's 718 238 Sixty-five hundred. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622.
3: Now, if you have any questions, you better call quickly because we're going to go to our interview segment of the show in a, in a few minutes. So the phone number is 1-866-970-9622. Now, Beth, you were asking about uh, October 4th, I think, is the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. And you had a question about that?
4: Well, yes. We have a, a little friend that wanted to inquire about it, that he had heard that their pet companions can be I blessed I think it's animal
3: companions, not pet companions.
4: All right. Animal I think that's
3: companions. proper terminology.
4: All right. Animal companions are going to be blessed this week. But why is it this particular day?
3: Well, that I really, you know, can't answer that. I mean, it's the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis of Assisi had a certain gift or ability to communicate with animals. So that's why usually the blessing of animals takes place on October 4th. More than that, I, you know, can't really say. Now, you know, Father Paul should be back in... uh, a couple of weeks, maybe he can talk to us about it in the end of October, but he's not gonna be here on October fourth. And as Father Paul said, Saint Francis was a really cool saint that even the Catholic Church can't criticize.
4: (laughs) Well so we I think that Otto is going to be going to Saint Michael's here in Brooklyn. It's on Fourth Avenue. Do you know the cross street?
3: It's around forty third street.
4: So we're gonna find a time. We're gonna check on it to see when When the priest will be there, and so because we want Otto to receive a blessing.
3: Okay, well, so it goes. But if (laughs) you want to hear our seminars, our seminars again, as Matt just mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, we're going to do our seminars in Brooklyn in October. You know, the way we work it with our seminars, usually we do Brooklyn one month, we do Manhattan, Staten Island another month, and then Queens the next month. So last month we did. Uh, Manhattan and Staten Island. This month we're going to be doing Brooklyn, and then November we're going to be doing Queens. But in this month we're going to be in Bay Ridge on October 23rd at Vesuvio Restaurant. October 25th we're going to be in Buckley's and Sheepshead Bay. I don't know if Sheepshead Bay Marine Park, but it says Sheepshead Bay here. That's 2926 Avenue S. And on Thursday, October 26th, we're going to be in Brooklyn Park Slope at the Montauk Club. 25 8th Avenue. So if you want to hear about estate planning, and the main question usually comes out at all the seminars, what's the best way to take care of my house? How do I transfer my house safely to my children? And of course, a lot of people don't realize there are a lot of negative consequences if you just give the house to your kids. Um, You know, a lot of people, they paid $50,000 for the house. The house is worth more than a million dollars now. You just give the house to your kids. You're going to cost your kids hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital gains taxes, or even if it's a rental property, you could lose millions of dollars worth of depreciation on the rental property. Giving the house to your kids is not the right way to do it. You give the house in a trust to your kids. It'll avoid probate. It'll go out tax-free. Now, President Trump is trying to get the, uh, you know, the death tax eliminated as far as the federal government is concerned, but today, even today, it's $5,450,000 federal, $5,250,000 New York State. So between husband and wife in New York State, we can get $10 million plus out tax-free through a trust in New York State. So that still fits a lot of people. Yes, I think that the death tax is unjust, and I hope that it's raised dramatically or gotten away with completely, because why should the government get part of the assets saved by people, you know, and and they're paying tax all their lives, and then they get it taxed again when they pass away?
4: small businesses farmers out west just their land can be worth so much and sometimes they have to sell it to pay taxes
3: yeah because sometimes they can't get a mortgage because they don't generate enough income to pay back the mortgage because the farm may be the land may be worth a lot but the income from the land may not be that great and then in that case they, they can't get a mortgage because the income is not that great and they have to sell the land to pay the taxes and that's part of what we're trying to Avoid, of course. There, uh, obviously, we don't get a lot into, uh, you know, farmland in our estate tax returns being based in New York City. But there are s- certain things where you can pay in installments over a period of time, whatever if you own farmland. But still, the idea is, why should you have to pay the tax at all? So, if you want to go to any of the seminars, you want any information on the seminars, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Admission is free. But we do want to get a general idea of how many people are going to show up just so we can set the seating up properly. And every once in a while, you know, like Manhattan, we have more people coming in than we have seats. Uh, It doesn't happen that often. But still, if it's going to happen, we want to be prepared for it, figure out what we have to do. I mean, we'll try not to turn away too many people, but we have to have a general idea of how many people are going to show up. Even, Even if we have space available, we want to know how many chairs to get ready. Because we want to set things up in a comfortable manner, but still be able to sit everybody that comes in. So, if you want to go to one of our seminars, you're more than welcome to do it. And if you're a former client of ours, an old client of ours, I should say, you want to come in and talk things over, feel, please feel free and give us a call at 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500. And, you know, I'm going to do the interviews in a minute, but we'll, let me mention one thing about the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Uh, the fifty dollars a mission is a great deal because you're going to get food there. We're going to have some pasta dishes. We're going to have some meats, cheese hors d'oeuvres, things like that. So it's not fifty bo- bucks just to get in the door. It's fifty bucks to get in the door and get a meal. And the Bayridge Manners and ni- you know, nice catering hall. You're going to get a you know a good meal there, a good bargain for your um, for your money, and you get a chance to talk films with Patrick Wayne. And most importantly, all the proceeds are going to go to the John Wayne Cancer Institute. It's going to go for a good cause. And everybody everybody has been touched by cancer one way or the other. And, of course, the Wayne family has been touched by cancer more than most. Uh, There are a lot of people in the family who've succumbed to cancer, including John Wayne, which is why the John Wayne Cancer Institute was founded. But it's for a good cause. Patrick's a good guy. I think you'll enjoy listening to him. He'll enjoy talking to you about old movies, films that he was in like Big Jake and Sinbad and...
4: Shenandoah.
3: Shenandoah, The Land the Time Forgot, Mr. Roberts, and, of course, the films with his father like uh, McClintock. The Searchers. The Searchers, Rio Grande, um, The Quiet Man, The Comancheros, The Alamo. So join us on... October 9th. Admission is going to be 50 bucks, but you're going to get a meal for it, you know, so it, it's a good deal. Bayridge Ridge Manor is a great place to go, and if you get there a little early, you can stop by our office on Fifth Avenue and 76th Street in Brooklyn, 7408 Fifth Avenue, and you get a, a look at my military miniature collection of Civil War military <laughs> miniatures uh, in, in the office there. Okay, we're running a little behind, so I guess we should take a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. We're going to be talking to Dinesh D'Souza in a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer.
0: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information, but so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health, but if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, So should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
6: If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Dinesh D'Souza, documentarian, author, and he has a new book out, The Nazi Roots of the American Left, The Big Lie. How are you doing today, Dinesh?
2: I'm doing well, thanks. Good to be on the show.
3: Your title took me back a little bit because I really don't think, obviously we're not fans of the American Left, but I really don't think of the American Left as having their roots in the Nazi uh theology, so to speak.
2: Well, I think um, it's certainly true that the conventional wisdom is that communism may be on the left, but Nazism is on the right. And this idea is given support by the fact that in World War II, the Soviet Union, the communists, were on one side, and the Nazis, the fascists, were on the other. Now, ironically, once you dig into this, uh, you discover that fascism and communism are ideologically very similar. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, if they're so similar, why do they go to war? Well, in in reality, ideologies that are very close sometimes do fight very bitterly. I think, for example, of the Shia and the Sunni. They're both inside the House of Islam. They both agree 99% on their doctrine or ideology, and yet they've been fighting for centuries, fighting not only about ideas, but fighting also about converts and about power.
3: Okay. Now, when you were on the show last time, we spent a few minutes talking about Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood and shared a lot of similar ideas about genetics and euthanasia with with the Nazis and Adolf Hitler.
2: Well, when I started this book, The Big Lie, I was hoping to trace some similarities between the development of eugenic ideology on both sides of the Atlantic, both in America on the one hand and in Nazi Germany on the other What I didn't realize is is that the Americans were the world leaders in eugenics in the early part of the 20th century. And progressives like Margaret Sanger and others came up with a whole bunch of ideas. Forced sterilization was one, another was the idea of what one California eugenicist named Paul Popino called lethal chambers to basically line people, what he considered to be unfit or useless people, and kill them. Now, the Nazis heard about these American ideas at international eugenics conferences and they basically said fantastic we're going to run with this and so the Nazi forced sterilization program of 1933 or the Nazi euthanasia program of 1935 were both actually based on blueprints drawn up by Sanger and other American eugenicists.
3: What other roots are there of not the Nazi roots of the American left what else did you find?
2: Well I show in the book and this is breaking a lot of new ground here that The Nazis who wrote the Nuremberg Laws, the Nuremberg Laws were the laws of 1935 that made Jews into second-class citizens. They prevented or forbade intermarriage between Jews and other Germans. They segregated the Jews into ghettos. They involved state-sponsored discrimination against Jews, including later confiscation of Jewish property. Now, here's the amazing thing. As all these senior Nazi officials gather in the room, they say to themselves, we are starting the first racial state in the world. And then one of the Nazis kind of breaks up the party by saying, sorry, guys, we can't do that because the Democratic Party in the United States has already done it. They've beaten us to the punch. They already outlaw intermarriage between blacks and whites. They already have segregation. They already have state-sponsored discrimination. So essentially all we have to do is take their laws, cross out the word black, write in the word Jew, and we're home free. And so the point I'm trying to make is, again, not that there are parallels or similarities between democratic laws, Jim Crow laws, and Nazi laws, but that the Nazis actually had in their hands the democratic laws and were using them, were just modifying them very slightly in order to get the notorious Nuremberg Laws of 1935.
3: But at the same time, would you say the Democrats of, let's say, the, the Jim Crow era, were they the American left?
2: They were. Um, um, now, when we, we have to make some distinctions here. When you mentioned Margaret Sanger a moment ago, now you're talking about the progressives. And the progressives overlapped with the Democrats, but they were a distinct left-wing movement. There were some Republicans as well who were progressives, but the progressives were mainly on the left. When we talk about the Democratic Party, we have to make a little switch, because the Democratic Party now is a little different than it was in the 1930s and 1940s but at the same time we're talking about the same party look by and large we are all held accountable for our own history right notice all the people who are rampaging through the south pulling down confederate monuments they're blaming the south for southern history for secession and so on well why shouldn't the democratic party be held accountable to its own history a history for which it has never admitted never apologized never paid one penny of restitution for.
3: True. I mean, again, a lot of those statues are up to Democrats. A lot of those Southern statues being torn down, those guys were members of the Democratic Party.
2: Well, that's certainly true. But I also think it's interesting that when you see these taking down of statues, nobody identifies them as Democrats. They only identify them as Southerners. And so to me, that is part of the big lie. In other words, the big lie is an attempt to take the sins of the Democratic Party and project them onto the South. You know, there's an important distinction here, and that is that the secession debate of 1860 was, in fact, between the North and the South. But the slavery debate, which actually began in the 1820s and continued all the way to 1860, a 40-year-old debate, that was not a North-South debate. In fact, toward the end, the slavery debate was entirely between the pro-slavery Democratic Party, North and South.
3: And the the anti-slavery Republican Party. Yeah, and as uh, the listeners to our show know, there were a lot of Southerners back in the 1850s, 1860s who were opposed to slavery. Just like most of New York may be liberal, there are New York conservatives. And just back then, let's say my wife was from Louisiana, most of them may have been pro-slavery. But at the same time, there was an abolitionist movement which did help the Underground Railroad and such in in the uh, 1850s.
2: Well, first of all, you know most Southerners did not own slaves. Most Confederates didn't own slaves. Second, 100,000 Southerners fought on the Union side in the Civil War. And third, the Northern Democrats, led by Stephen Douglas of Illinois, protected slavery for more than a decade with the same zeal as the Southern Democrats. So the Democratic Party in the North was also a protector of slavery, just as in the South.
3: We're talking about 150 years ago. What do you want the reader to take out of the book today? What's the connection? What, what do you want them to learn?
2: Well, the key point here is this, that the left has been playing the race card and now the fascism card, And the purpose of these cards is to avoid normal political debate. The purpose of this is essentially to say, we, the left, are the good guys, the party of anti-fascism. That's why one of the anti-fascist groups is ANTIFA. And you, the right, you are the fascist. So we don't have to argue with you. We just have to repress you, prevent you from speaking on campus, disrupt you, beat you up, get rid of you by any means necessary. So the, the fascism charge is a justification for violence and for conduct that would normally be unacceptable. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is blow up the race card and blow up the fascism card, not only by saying that the right is not guilty, but by, tr- by essentially sort of showing that the left is, a, is trying to blame the right for things that the left is actually responsible for. It's a form of what Freud called transference.
3: Now, I just want to remind the viewers, you had the courage for convictions where you, in effect, had to serve some prison time through the Obama administration.
2: Well, I was dispatched to a confinement center for eight months for a technical campaign finance law violation. No American has been prosecuted for doing what I did, let alone locked up. And this, to me, is actually the worst type of fascism. I mean, we worry about you know, the guys marching in Charlottesville or the Antifa thugs at Berkeley. But the truth is the most dangerous fascism is not the fascism of the street, but the fascism of the institutions, the the powerful Hollywood bosses who can destroy your career if you speak out of turn, or the academic beans who can run, you know, make you a pariah on campus, or, like with Obama and Hillary, the people who can use the power of the state, the FBI, the Justice Department, the IRS, to go after their political enemies, that's much more dangerous than some kid in a mask with a baseball bat.
3: You bring up in your book, The Collectivism of Big Brother. How does that relate to today?
2: The way it relates today is that the, um, the core meaning of fascism is not authoritarianism or nationalism. The core meaning of fascism is the advocacy of the powerful centralized state. And Mussolini who formed the first fascist regime in the world said everything in the state and nothing outside the state. And what he meant by this is the state is kind of like a big organism, a living organism, and each individual is a cell within it. So you have no rights. You have no importance. Your only importance is to the degree you serve the state. Now, my point is, does that sound like the platform of the Republican Party or the platform of the Democratic Party?
3: Well said. Dinesh, thank you for, uh, you know, your fight for— Political Freedom for Freedom of Speech. I hope your book does well, and we want to see that What what's your next documentary.
2: Well, I'm going to take these themes in The Big Lie. Next uh, year is a big uh, midterm election year, a lot of Democratic seats up, and so I'm going to release a movie based on this book uh, next summer, uh, and then out in DVD um, in the fall.
3: Thank you, Dinesh D'Souza. Again, thanks to our guests, George Mendeluk and Dinesh D'Souza. And you know, Beth, Dinesh D'Souza brought up a point which I think a lot of people don't really-
7: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's
3: jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to Will my to
5: assets me? be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma?
3: On October 10th this year our next guest Patrick Wayne is going to be receiving the humanitarian award at the Fanny dinner to benefit cancer research. Congratulations Patrick.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much. That's the uh, Fashion Footwear of New York for those who don't know what the acronym is and it's specifically for breast cancer uh, research and uh, I represent the John Wayne Cancer Institute and specifically our uh, protocols for breast cancer research. And we've been the beneficiary, the recipient of support from Fannie for over 18 years. And um, so we're, we're thrilled for the association. And I am I am humbled and honored by this uh, award they're presenting to me. I've had the good fortune and honor of, of working with Three, uh, three men in leadership, I call them the Holy Trinity. It's uh, Dick Jacobson and then uh, Jill Moore and uh, presently Ron From. All of these men under their leadership, uh, Fannie's uh, foundation and fundraising has been uh, – uh, unbelievable! Every year, year in and year out, they they just done a wonderful job.
3: Some members of the audience may not know the connection of your father and how the John Wayne Cancer Institute got started. So, you, you want to give them a little bit of a history lesson?
7: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, my father was uh, at UCLA, and he was uh, in the last weeks of his life, and uh, there was a, a doctor there by the name of Don Morton who was working on an experimental trial. And uh, he came to my dad and asked my dad if he if he wouldn't uh, if he would uh, join the trial, and my dad said hell yes and um, and if I if I live I'm going to help you guys and so he went on the trial and unfortunately uh, it, it didn't work for him but my brothers and sisters and I thought uh, as a legacy to my dad we would um, we would try to help uh, in, in cancer research and use his name to create awareness about cancer research and to help raise money to fund it. So we teamed up with Don Morton uh, at UCLA and formed the John Wayne Cancer Institute, which uh, a few years later moved to uh, a community hospital in Santa Monica St. John's Health Center, where we've been for the over the last 20 years. And um, it is a, uh, a robust research institute. We've got protocols on not only in breast cancer, but, um, melanoma and lung and liver and brain and uh, prostate cancer protocols as well.
3: Now, my understanding is you've put a great team of medical doctors and researchers together.
7: Uh, we, we, we think the best. We, <laughs> we, um, we have a great, um, a great group of doctors who um, practice medicine at St. John's Health Center and then do their research or their uh, clinical trials. Uh, under the umbrella of the John Wayne Cancer Institute. In addition to the research that's going on there in their clinical trials, we also have a fellowship program where we take um, board-certified surgeons and for two or three years train them to become board-certified cancer surgeons. And uh, this is a, a very important uh, for, for the medical community, if you have a tumor and you need it to be removed, a cancer tumor, the best thing you can do for yourself is go to a surgeon who has been trained as specifically uh, in uh, cancer tumor removal. So that's something else we're adding uh, back to, to society.
3: Now, I know another award you received earlier this year, my, my buddy Pat Fauci from the Searchers Club told me that you were inducted into the Hall of Great Western Performers at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum.
7: That is correct. It's, a, it's an amazing museum in Oklahoma City uh, dedicated to the preservation of our heritage and the West. And it's a, it's an amazing museum, and I, uh, I I I was also inducted in there, and and I began wondering, uh, two very prestigious awards in one year. What does somebody know something? I mean, is this my last year on Earth, or what's going on here,
3: My <laughs> I, hope, I hope not, from that point of view. <laughs> now, now, you know, now a lot of people may or may not know, but you were in about how many films with your father, John Wayne?
7: I think I was in seven seven films.
3: And films directed by the great director John Ford.
7: John Ford. I, I was in about 11 films uh, that uh, he did.
3: So, I mean, some of those films are, are truly memorable. And, of course, you have memorable performances, McClintock, Shenandoah, Big Jake.
7: Definitely. I've uh, got a body of work in the West. I also, uh, I've also done films in the sci-fi genre, including... Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and uh, The People of Time Forgot, um, also a couple of my
3: favorites. So The People of Time Forgot is one of your favorites?
7: Well, I would say Sinbad was uh, was right up there. The People of Time Forgot was a, a great experience working uh, with a great group of people. Uh, likewise, of The Sinbad Show.
3: Well, outside of some of the Westerns, my wife's favorite is The People of Time Forgot, and my son's favorite is Sinbad. <laughs>
7: Oh, it is. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: Uh, you think about acting anymore? Or is it? It's in the past now.
7: I i pretty much. Um, you know, I started uh, uh, working with the institute when my older brother passed away uh, almost 15 years ago, and it um, it it was um, it was not you know. I... Let me, let me put it this way. I would be involved with the institute maybe three or four days a month, and even that, the meetings would be at my house, so I didn't have to even leave my house. Now I am involved three or four days a week uh, with the institute. I'm on the board at the hospital. I'm on the on their foundation board, the board of trustees, and the hospital board. I just felt like it would be... Uh, it's important to be engaged with a hospital and get the uh, the community that uh, supports the hospital to be engaged with us and what we're doing and, and uh, support us as well. So it's it's become a full-time unpaid job.
3: Okay, well, thank you for doing it. Again, getting back to your film career, a lot of people, you know, remember you, let's say, for Mr. Roberts, you, you, you played the young sailor, and that had a great cast, Henry Fonda, Jack Lemmon, James Cagney william powell ward bond
7: yeah it was uh it, they're terrific people and terrific people to work with and really were nice to me
3: <laughs> was john ford nice to you
7: john ford was really nice to me which is uh an unusual thing to say typically about john ford he he doesn't have a reputation for being nice to people uh but but i was his uh godson and so i i you know i've had, was uh, spared um, uh, most of his acerbic wit.
3: Now, the other night I was watching Rio Grande, and actually we had Claude, Claude Jarman Jr. on the show. Oh, really? He's a he's a really uh, good buddy of mine even today. Actually, if you look hard, you're going to see you as a little kid there. Yeah. What was it like doing a film when you're, what, 10, 11 years old with all, all those great actors, including your father?
7: Well, you know, if I, if I, my my memories were like, uh basically it went something like this do you want to be in the film what exactly does that entail he says well you, you know you're going to get five dollars and i said I'll, i'm there sign me up and um so uh it, it evolved into something more than that obviously and what i really began to realize early on was that since my other brothers and sisters had no interest in doing it that um I, I had a lot of uh, alone time with my dad when I go on these uh, locations with him, and uh, I didn't uh, have to compete with my brothers and sisters for his attention. So that that was a, a real fun experience. And then working with um, uh, all these great, as you say, the great uh, the great performers of the era and the and the and the crews. And pretty much exclusively uh, with the director, John Ford. It was either with my dad or it was with John Ford, and, you know, to her own power or somebody else. So I, I just learned the experience of what it was like working for one director, and he is by no means a typical director. Uh, and, and that was something that I would, I would come to learn later in my career.
3: What was the difference, let's say, between John Ford and, and, and Andy McLaughlin?
7: Well, between John Ford and just about everybody else, I, I mean, I haven't worked with every director, obviously, but uh, typically um, you, you get a script, you read the script, you, you develop an idea of who your character is and how he fits in the story and how you, you, know, you want to play the character. You may come together with a director who may have a, a, an overall uh, idea about the screenplay and how you fit into it, and you, know, you may discuss... Uh, you know, character nuances that, that would, you uh, know, a, a compromise, if you will, that would uh, to make it work for you and for the director and for the picture as a whole. When you're working with John Ford, no, he says do it this way, and he will keep um, directing the scene over and over again until you do it the way he does, and then you just you basically have faith and hope that he knows what he's talking about.
3: Well, I guess he did. The results are in. I think
7: time time has proved that he uh, was pretty right in most cases.
3: Like, for instance, for the sake of argument, you played the uh, young lieutenant in The Searchers. And at the time, maybe The Searchers was just considered another Western. But now here we are 60 years later, and it is the Western.
7: I know, and uh, that's a a strange story indeed. Um, The Searchers, when it was released, was just an okay picture. It got... uh, so-so reviews and uh, and and uh, you know uh, not that not that popular at the box office. And then uh, a generation later, uh, later when these uh, young guys uh, were in film school, like Scorsese and Spielberg and uh, uh, fr- Frank uh, Francis Coppola, they found this film and fell in love with it. And it uh, it it became a cult sensation overnight. And I don't know, maybe maybe uh, the timing wasn't right in the '50s for that film, but uh, it, it certainly it turned around and is is now on, as you say, uh, the 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 list of top 100 films ever made. So that's a big jump.
3: Well, the film might have been ahead of its time in, in the racism that it brought to light, and I think the audiences weren't quite ready for it yet.
7: Probably right. I mean, who can say? Um, there's. Uh, there's no question about that element in the film, and um, uh, a tough role for John Wayne, but uh, he he swooped it up in the in the last three minutes uh, three minutes of the film, and his whole character redeemed itself.
3: Well, I think that's a lot of John Ford films talking about redemption. I, I agree with you. Okay, now I understand you may be deigning to come into Brooklyn in October. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> you are I'm very huh? excited. Oh yeah,
7: I mean I. Um, the last couple of years, we've had an opportunity to uh, to have you um, over to Manhattan for dinner, and it's always been great. And uh, now I'm looking forward to being on your turf.
3: Yeah, and not only that, we're going to have a lot of fans of you and your father, and hopefully, we can start getting them into the John Wayne Cancer Institute family.
7: Well, that, that's uh, that's wonderful. I, I I would be very excited and uh, always thrilled to meet. The fans, they always have such positive and nice things to say about my dad. It's, it's something I really look forward to. So that should be a fun night.
3: Listen, in my mind, your father's portrayal of Ethan Edwards in The Searches is the greatest performance in the history of American cinema.
7: Um, I, I, I would lump that in there as uh, uh, right up there in the top of his performance. I also liked his, uh, his, his character in The, uh, the Shootist, this uh, dinosaur uh, you know, passing into a new generation and uh, his, his, just his acting skills with uh, just a fleshed out character of a human being who had vulnerabilities is something you rarely saw in a John Wayne portrayal. But his, uh, his performance of uh, Ethan in The Searchers, he was a uh, full-blown nasty man who uh, was also capable of redemption, as we said earlier.
3: All right. Well, we're going to look forward to seeing you in October, Patrick. Congratulations on all your awards.
7: Hey, thank you, Mike. It's, I'm looking forward to seeing you in, uh, in a couple of
3: months. All right. Thank you. See you soon. Thank you. Okay, so that's October 9th. Where are we going
4: to be October 9th, Beth? We're going to be at Bay Ridge Manor.
3: Okay, which is at 476 76th Street. Now, go ahead. Two
4: blocks from our office.
3: Right, so if you come in a little early, stop in the reception area, the first floor reception area of our office, and you can take a look at some of my Civil War miniatures. Now, I've only got about maybe 2,000 on display on the first floor there, but uh, it's, it's not a bad start, yeah. He,
4: just, he doesn't have enough toy soldiers, everybody. Well, we don't have oh. enough room to
3: display them all, that's <laughs> the problem. <laughs>
4: If you do come out, I will be over there if possible. If I don't have to be at the manor, but um, I'll be there to show everybody around wherever, because we have two floors that have a lot of Mike's collection, and they're just—they really are great.
3: Okay, so that's October ninth at four seventy-six, seventy-six Street, the Bayridge Manor, starting at six o'clock. But if you get there a little early, you can. Our office is right around the corner at 7408 5th Avenue. For those of you who know Bay Ridge, most of the streets are numbered, and it's not hard. We're on seventy-fourth, between 74th and 75th Street. The Bay Ridge Matters on 76th Street, right off 5th Avenue. Really, you know, no more than two short blocks away.
4: If you want to come, though, call the office and let them know that you'd like to see the soldiers.
3: Right. Okay. Well, I didn't you know, know we could do that. Because
4: if you do want to, I'll make sure I'm there or somebody's there. Okay.
3: Okay. Well, you can only, even if you're passing by at night or something like that when the office is closed, there is a Irish Brigade set, General Thomas Francis Marr leading the Irish Brigade in a charge at Antietam, which we're very lucky to have displayed at Greenwood Cemetery at uh, Thomas Francis Marr's anniversary, the 150th anniversary of his death. All right. Well, I hear the music, too. Okay. So I guess it's... uh, Hopefully, we'll see you next week. I don't know where the football shows are. But uh, thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer and look forward to our expanded schedule coming up in the fall.
4: Bye bye.